thrilled to have our hearts prepared to come to the book of 1 John tonight. We pick up in our study of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Certainly praying in our homes. I know many are dealing with illnesses right now. And uh, certainly it's a couple in our family are not feeling well. So and I know it's in others as well. So I pray that everyone is healthy in your homes and recovers quickly. 1 John 2, we're in verses 1 and 2. Here's what John writes. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This passage is so rich and so significant, much for us to consider in this passage. So we noticed last week, having come to this passage, we noticed that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is the one who is either standing before the Father as a divine defense attorney, as a lawyer advocating our behalf, on our behalf, or he is as described as a high priest making a sacrifice on our behalf. In either case, he stands before the Father, interceding on our behalf presently as his ministry. It's described here. This one is able to then reconcile us to the living God. What is encouraging in this passage is the reminder of the context, as John talked about at the end of chapter 1, sin being in us. If He says back in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, then that is the present tense. If we say we presently do not sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. If we say we have never sinned, past tense, if we have never had any transgression at all, we also make God a liar and His Word is not in us. But as verse 9 says, if we are confessing, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us all our transgressions. And what may happen in the Christian life as we are regularly in the battle of sin, when we can look back and see our, our sinful condition and we're painfully aware of that sinful condition as it springs its head up at various times, and when we regularly proceed in Christ and we find ourselves falling short and you do that over any period of time, you start to become discouraged. And it's in those moments that John comforts our heart here in chapter 2, verse 1. With all this discussion of sin, all this discussion of God's holiness and being perfect light, and in Him there's no darkness at all, then when we see darkness within ourselves and we are discouraged, John takes our thoughts and he moves it off of the focus on ourself and he focuses it on Christ. He is the perfect advocate. He is our advocate, standing before the Father, And we pick up on this work of advocacy tonight, and we get to see tonight why it is that Jesus is the perfect advocate. What is it about him that qualifies him to fulfill this particular role? And as I wanted to demonstrate last week and carry over to this week, is that nothing we do exhausts the perfect work of Christ. Nothing we do will end his sacrifice and have to start over. He has been and is the perfect sacrifice. Now we come to this passage in verse 2, 
particularly, which states, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but the, those of the whole world. And there's no end of theological debate around these verses. No end of discussion around the atonement and who exactly did Christ die for and, and what does it mean that He is the propitiation for the whole world? What is John trying to teach here? In fact, there are so many discussions on this particular passage. And there are many ways in which we might interpret the verse 2 here and describe what uh, John is saying. In fact, many different interpretations. One, it would be the idea of universalism. This idea says, well, then Jesus propitiated for everybody's sin in the whole world. Therefore, he's taken all their sins, everyone who's ever lived, everyone at all times, he's taken all their sins, and he went and he died on the cross, and he paid for all of them. The idea then is that he laid down his life so that all sins are covered. So the universalists would teach that everyone's entering into heaven because Jesus laid down his life. All roads head to heaven. All roads are, are, are going to lead to salvation. All debts are covered because Christ has atoned for them all. Now, of course, we would look and say, well, there are too many passages in the Scriptures describing both a heaven and a hell for the, a universalist to be accurate here. Too many passages which describe condemnation and judgment and, and casting them off who have rebelled. You know, Matthew chapter 7, for example, when those were standing before Christ saying to Christ, Lord, Lord, haven't we done these things? And he says, depart from me, for I've never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. There is so many discussions on condemnation and hell that the universalist position wouldn't hold up. There's also a neo-universalist position, a neo-universalism of atonement. This is presented even in the last uh, decade by a pastor, a former pastor by the name of Rob Bell, who ultimately, again, would say that Jesus went and paid for everybody's sins, but, this, but in paying for it, it was up to us to take hold of it. Christ laid himself down. He paid for everyone's sin. The only sin we're actually condemned for is not believing in Jesus. Everything else would be covered in Rob Bell's view. And this idea is it's come to Jesus because he will accept you. He keeps it real. He'll talk about the things you talk about. You can, he's a part of your community. So he, he uh, and I'm not exactly saying the he gets us movement but that's the idea he has he relates with you and interacts with you so just come and accept jesus and rob bell's version christ's atonement is much like the arminian view of atonement that christ paid for everyone's debt making salvation possible the distinction with rob bell's view is that the only sin ultimately that condemns us is our rejection of jesus christ there's also the Pelagian view of this verse. It says, ultimately, every man is fine. Every man is good. He's without any stain at all. It's just the bad examples that lead him astray. And so Christ's atonement is the, uh, an example of good, godly living. So you don't necessarily need Christ's example to cover our sins since we're all fine to begin with. Then there is the Arminian view of atonement. And the Arminian view of atonement here is that Christ, again, laid himself down 
paid the penalty of sin to make salvation possible. He's actually taken away the corruption of original sin, so it's just up to us to go out and initiate, to choose God to receive salvation. And then there is the Calvinistic view of atonement, that Christ laid himself down specifically for his people. That is, this atonement is limited to those who are in Christ. And by the way, if you were struggling with limitation language in the atonement, just understand, unless you're a universalist, everybody limits the atonement. It's just a matter of how it's limited. Is it limited by God or by man and his choice? Where is the limitation? Everyone limits the atonement except for the universalist who says it's applied to everybody. So when they come to this verse here, we're asking, as, he, as the text says, he himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And the question that comes up is whose sins are covered in these verses? Well, when we come to this verse, actually, this verse isn't describing anyone's sins being atoned for. Actually, what this verse is describing is what Jesus does and what Jesus is, who he is. That's the focus of this verse. This passage is about the Lord Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ is to us. Now, there's so much, again, to unpack from this. But this is one of those times where folks run to a particular passage to make a passage say more than what it's intending to say. Again, this is a classic passage that an Arminian would run to and say, look, Jesus paid for everybody's sins because of the second half of verse 2. He's not only for ours, but for the whole world. He's covered everyone's sin, not just ours, but everyone's. So there are... Once that debate starts happening, you start to force the text to say more than what it's actually intending to say. And of course, various Calvinists have come along and tried to refute that. And you'll start to hear the various debates of why world doesn't mean everybody in the world or why all doesn't mean all all the time. You may read various articles. You have uh, uh, R.B. Kuyper's book, For Whom Did Christ Die? And you have an article by Phil Johnson entitled, All Always Means All, right? There are this, this whole debate is, like I've said before in a sermon, was everybody really kung fu fighting? I mean, is it everybody out there engaged in the activities? Well, that logical discussion comes up all the time when you start to talk about the limitations of the atonement and for whom did Christ die. Then you start to apply the particular details. Well, before we even look at all those rational arguments, and I'm certainly not refuting their logic as they are wrestling through it, their logic is sound, I want us to consider specifically what this text is actually stating so that in understanding what this text actually states, we can then go back and look at the, the issue at hand, the issue of the atonement. And I'm reminded specifically of the importance of paying attention to the grammatical details because they, they're significant. And this was highlighted, the significance of the grammatical details was highlighted back in the 1990s. There was a famous time when Bill Clinton was taken before a grand jury investigation. 
And he was asked in the 90s if he had been in a relationship and he responded in that uh, deposition with this statement. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. You remember historically what he was trying to defend himself from being under perjury by debating on the significance of the word is. And he goes on and he says, well, if somebody had asked me on the day of my grand jury testimony, are you having any kind of relation with this gal? That said, if they had asked me in the present tense, I would have said no. And it would have been true. Because I wasn't at that very moment in a relationship. Maybe yesterday I was, and maybe tomorrow I might be, but I wasn't at that very moment. So arguing on the tense of the verb, on the present tense activity, is got him out of being found guilty and therefore being condemned as a sitting president. He used the present tense as a way to escape the condemnation. That's significant for us. Grammar means something. And in this text, there is a significant grammatical issue that has to be paid attention to to understand what exactly John is trying to state in this text. So that we come into this text and say, Jesus is out here dying for everyone in the whole world. We're missing what Paul is, or what John is stating in this particular context. So let's get into this. Remember just... Again, what John has stated, he's given us the obedience test in chapter 1. Do you obey? Do you walk in the light? He's given us the confession test in chapter 1. Do you confess your sins? He's, he's given us the acknowledgement test. Do you acknowledge your sinful condition? And now he is turning our attention and saying, okay, now, little children, verse 1, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. I'm writing so you will distance yourself from sin, that you won't walk in it, that you, it would be foreign to you. But if you do sin, recognize you have an advocate, one who comes alongside of you. A, as we noticed last week, a paraclete, a helper, a divine helper who comes alongside and encourages or helps I like the idea, I think about this often in regards to like a football game, when an injured player gets hurt on the field, a group of medical physicians come running out, they help him, they may even pick him up and carry him off the field, helping him get off the field. That is an example of a paraclete, a helper. By wrapping their arms under him and bearing his weight, they help him along to get off the field. This is the idea. If you sin, you have an advocate, a helper. You have one who is standing before the Father, as the text says. If anyone says we have an advocate with the Father, this is where he is at. He's in the presence of the Father. A fitting role here, able to interact on our behalf. Able to interact particularly with the Father to give an account. Now, just stopping right here for a moment, because what comes next describes, in the next three statements for us, it describes for us why Jesus Christ is the perfect advocate. With this phrase, we have an advocate with the Father, the phrase, Jesus Christ the righteous, begins to set our focus that why Christ is our 
perfect advocate. Notice what he does not say here, well, that he could have said. We could have said we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Drawing our attention to the relationship between the advocate with the Father, the familial connection between the two. He doesn't draw our attention to the personal relationship that Jesus Christ has with the Father. That would even begin to corrupt the Father's character, to call into question why the Father would overlook our transgressions. In fact, everything that we're going to see now in these three qualities that John lays out are three qualities that establish Christ as the perfect advocate on our behalf. We don't have to get overwhelmed. We don't have to get to a place in which we are fearing exhausting His work or rule. We don't have to be in a place where we are overly distressed by the presence of sin within us. We need to actually go back and respond to sin in the biblical way, which is confession and entrusting ourselves to the work of Christ. Why is Christ then the perfect advocate? Three reasons. Because he is righteous, because he is the perfect sacrifice, and because he is the sufficient sacrifice. He is the perfect advocate because he is righteous, he is the perfect sacrifice, and he is the sufficient sacrifice. How do we know? Well, the first part, he is righteous. If anyone sins, We have an advocate with the Father in this first phrase, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or righteous Jesus Christ is literally what it reads. Jesus Christ is able to stand before the Father because of his perfections, because of his righteousness, because of his sinlessness. That in everything that he has done, he has done it without fault. If there's anyone that you want to go stand before the judge on your behalf is the one who knows the law perfectly and has kept the law perfectly. There is no stain within him, no fault at all, no transgression whatsoever. He is absolutely righteous. Again, this isn't an act, if he was, John was to draw our attention to the familial relationship with Jesus Christ, he would draw the relationship to Christ being the, the Son of God, there would be a measure of colluding in that case. Father, overlook this one, because hey, you're my father, and you, as a part of this relationship, father-son relationship, just overlook this one's sin. That's not what's happening in this case. What's happening in this case here is Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness is brought to bear on this situation. He has come, able to stand here, able to stand before the Father because there would be absolutely no fault within Him. John draws our attention to that. The one who interacts with the Father on our behalf is the perfect spotless Son of God, the one who lived under the law without transgressing, the one who faced all the earthly difficulties and trials that we face without giving into sin, the one who fulfilled all of the law and the prophets, the one who came into this world when, when he came in. In fact, turn over to 
Matthew chapter 3. Notice this. Matthew chapter 3. Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. Jesus comes and begins his earthly ministry. John the Baptist is out baptizing and many are coming. And notice this starting in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 3 of Matthew chapter 3, For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. As John was doing this particular work, and he was preaching this message. He was preaching a message of repentance. And he was baptizing. And as he was baptizing them, it says down in uh, verse uh, 6 and following, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Verse 7, but when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. To come to John and to be baptized by John was to be baptized to offer up repentance, to turn from the error of their ways. Verse 11 says, for as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire." What I'm pointing out here is John, when he was performing his ministry, was leading people to repentance, and he was baptizing them for repentance. Now, verse 13 says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John immediately recognizes the difficulty here. Wait a second, I'm baptizing for a baptism of repentance, and here the Pharisees are coming. I've rebuked the Pharisees because they're not coming for the right reason. I'm calling them to repentance. Everyone who is being baptized by me, I'm calling them to repentance. So when Jesus comes... And Jesus wants to be baptized. He doesn't need to repent. It actually should be the other way around, John says. I should be the one being baptized by you, Jesus, not you being baptized by me. Now notice Jesus' words. They're very revealing to us. But Jesus, verse 15, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time. Notice, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We do this not for myself, I am doing this for you, for everyone else. I am fulfilling all righteousness. Of course, then he was baptized. God speaks for heaven and affirms his work. The point is this, Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, 
was a man under the law in every way committing himself to keeping all that the Father required and satisfying all the law's righteous demands so that he can make atonement for sin. Spent his life, again, ministering. The rest of Matthew's gospel will go and describe his earthly ministry. He laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice so that by his sins, by his, by his life, his perfect life, and our sins credited to his account, he could bear our penalty. Back to, to 1 John chapter 2. We're looking at then this Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who has lived a life fulfilling all righteousness, Why was this important to fulfill all righteousness? Well, because Paul says to the Romans in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The one who sins deserves death. And Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says, the person who sins will die. And 1 Corinthians 6.9 says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The transgressor, the one who rebels, the one who walks in unrighteousness, the one who walks in in ungodliness will face condemnation, but the righteous shall live. The righteous shall find peace with God. Jesus Christ here then is described as the righteous one. Maybe if we put it even in terms, if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's just put it in one more Description, Second Corinthians chapter five, and verse twenty and twenty-one. Paul describing his ministry as an ambassador and the preacher of the gospel, and going out and ministering the gospel. Describes the gospel in this way in Second Corinthians five twenty and twenty-one. It says therefore. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's saying this is our description of our ministry. We go out as ministers of the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, and it's as if God is in us, proclaiming through us to all people, be reconciled to God through Christ. And then it's this description, verse 21. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange. Our sins put on Christ's account, Christ's righteousness put on our account. So we are able to be seen by God covered in the righteousness of God. Now I say that, to go back to 1 John 2 here then. Christ lived a perfect life. He lived a life without sin. He even lived a life of perfect example as if we, and his life is credited to our account as if we lived his perfect life. And if God did the great exchange where he took our sins and put it on him and took his righteousness and put it onto our account, we now come to here You have Jesus Christ, the righteous, standing before the Father. What's the significance of this? 
that if there is any transgression found within one of God's children, one of God's people, Christ could immediately remind the Father of his own righteousness, his own perfections. Immediately remind the Father that that life has already been covered. The sin has already been accounted for. Righteousness has already been credited to our account. So what makes Jesus Christ the perfect advocate is his righteousness. He is without fault. Nobody could accuse him of wrongdoing in any way. Not only that, then the second aspect of this this work that Christ does is that he is the perfect sacrifice. Notice verse 2. And he is, or he himself is, the propitiation for our sins. He is the sacrifice, the propitiation. This word propitiation is used only two times in the noun form in the New Testament, and both times it's here in the book of 1 John. Turn over to chapter 4 and verse 10. You see it again. It says this, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the sacrifice. This word propitiation is translated as appeasement or satisfaction. The father has righteous demands for the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The wrath wrath of God is poured out upon sin. It brings judgment. What 1 John 2.2 says is that Christ is the sacrifice, the appeasement for our sins. Kalasmos is the word. And it's describing again the fact that Christ has made atonement for And he made atonement for our sin by, again, bearing the penalty, bearing the the price. Maybe if I can best describe this, why this was needed. It was anticipated in the book of Isaiah. If you turn over to Isaiah chapter 53, let me show you that this was anticipated in Isaiah 53. When Jesus Christ was to be sent the suffering servant was to come, Isaiah 53, and we can pick up in verse 5 through 11. It says, He was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, notice, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And he was, affli- he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 
But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And notice verse 11, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, this God, will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, notice, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Describing the ministry of the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world, the prophet Isaiah anticipated this one, the Messiah who would come and bear the iniquities of his people. He would, verse 10, be crushed on their account. He would, verse 11, he will bear their iniquities. That's the idea of halasmos. Back to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. The active description by the prophet Isaiah, Christ will come and bear our penalties. Put onto his account where our transgressions, our iniquities, and then the wrath of God righteously came down upon him. So he bore, he appeased God's very wrath. Holy God poured out his vengeance, poured out his anger, poured out his justice upon the Son who was bearing our iniquities. That's what verse 2 is indicating here. He himself is the chalasmas, the propitiation, the appeasement, so that the wrath of the Father is satisfied. Now think again for a moment, if you are in this situation where you have confessed your sins, but now, even as a believer, you've recognized, I sinned again. I just confessed yesterday, I covered all my sins, I have been forgiven by Christ, now today I found new sin within me. John says, well, if you have, if anyone does sin, remember, you have Jesus Christ, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. And he's able to stand there because he could draw to the Father's account, first of all, his perfections. He has lived a perfect life and was perfectly righteous, and that righteousness is credited to our account. But secondly, he can remind the Father, I have already paid for that. I've already paid for that transgression. I've already bore that penalty. It has already been satisfied. It's already been appeased. Has already been atoned for. Now, one more detail to point out here. Someone thought, well, then is he actually dying for everyone's sin? Is he presently laying down his life for everybody's sin, not only ours, but for the whole world? Well, notice again the emphasis of the text to where the verb is. The verb there is not propitiation. That's actually a noun. The verb is the word is. It's a to be verb. This passage is emphasizing what Jesus Christ is. He is the sacrifice. He is the appeasement. 
What this passage is emphasizing here is not a universalism that Jesus is going around dying for the sins of ours and the whole world. That that would be a verbal form that he is propitiating or has propitiated. What John is emphasizing here is what Jesus Christ is. He is the sin offering. He is, to put it in the terms of the Gospel of John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the appeasement. The emphasis that John is pointing to then is this. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. No other sacrifice atones for sin. For no other sacrifice would be eternal. And no other sacrifice would be spotless. No other sacrifice can satisfy what the Father requires. Death. And the one who is anticipated from the Old Testament prophets is the one who, was, who came and lived perfectly here on earth and laid himself down. So John emphasizing this then, what makes Christ our perfect advocate is the fact that he himself is the sacrifice. And not just that, then the third point, he is then the sufficient sacrifice. As John goes on to say, and not ours only, but also for the whole, those of the whole world. What is John saying here? What he is showing is the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. His sacrifice is sufficient enough to pay for the whole world. If everyone should immediately repent... If everyone at all time immediately turned from the air of their way, anyone who ever lived, who anyone who ever operated, if everyone in the whole world at all times immediately repented and turned, there's Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover them all. Couldn't be exhausted. That's the emphasis here. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, able to cover everyone's sin, could not be exhausted. This is, again, comforting to us, especially when we're going back and thinking about the challenges of chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, speaking about regularly confessing sin Certainly as believers, when we are going through the battle of resisting evil and putting off unrighteous deeds and we keep being reminded of our own failures and we've been in the Lord again 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years, 60 years and we look back over 60, 70 years of of walking in Christ and we see some of the same patterns and the temptation in our heart may be at the moment, have I exhausted the sacrifice of Christ? The answer is absolutely not, verse 2, because he is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only, but for the whole world. His sacrifice, his appeasement for the Father's demands, sufficient enough to care for every sin that ever been committed. What is John emphasizing here? I think what John is emphasizing is exactly what Peter said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 10 when Peter was defending the gospel and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. He says in Acts 4, 10 through 12, he says this, Let it be known to all of you 
and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone, speaking of Christ, which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And then this phrase that Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What is John emphasizing here in 1 John 2, 2, is that there is no other source that we could come to for appeasement but the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only source of appeasement, not for our sins, but for also the whole world. He is the only source that one can turn to. He is the only sufficient Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the worlds. He is the only perfect sacrifice. He is the only righteous advocate. Some again, as we come to this, And then what makes Jesus Christ able to stand before the Father for us is his perfect work, perfect life and his perfect work. Now again, catch this when you think about it. Some say, again, we're not universalists saying Christ died for everyone because the emphasis here isn't on his activity. The emphasis is on who he is. He's the perfect sacrifice. But I also understand this context here naturally limits who Christ is the perfect advocate for. Who is the advocate for? Is he advocating for the whole world? No, he starts in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. Who are the little children? They're the ones who've had their sins forgiven. They're the ones who have believed They are the ones who have, again, jump down to verse 12 there of chapter 2. These are the little children. I'm writing to you, little children. This is the word technia. Because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. The little children are then those who, again, have their sins forgiven. So in this context, then, Jesus Christ, the advocate, is working on behalf of those who have believed upon the Son. That's who he's working for. He's working for us, able to stand before the Father, so the Father must listen to Christ's work because he's righteous. The Father would listen to Christ's work because He is that perfect sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice. And then the Father would listen to the Son's work because He's the inexhaustible sacrifice. There's no way that we could possibly run out. So I love this passage. Not not the emphasis of universalism here. We're not having to run around and try to explain it and mean how Christ only died for a particular group. The context is absolutely clear. Jesus Christ is advocating for his people, for those who've had their sins forgiven. 
And what do we emphasize then? What do we do as we proclaim the gospel to everyone around? What we do is remind people of this. Jesus Christ is the only source to have your sins atoned for. It's the only way. You can't work off your sins. You can't cooperate with them. It's not co-laboring with God to try to pay off sins. You can't give something else instead, your money, your time, your resources. Christ and Christ alone atones for our sins so that every person who ever lived at any time, no matter your nation or tribe, no matter your gender or status, all people must come to salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you have... We also recognize his present ministry for us as he stands before the Father advocating for us. And he's able to do, to do that until the end of time, never to be exhausted by our own weakness and frailties. Never to be exhausted by our own disobedience because he is the perfect, sufficient sacrifice before the Father. Well, next week when we come back together, we'll pick up in verse 3, and look at the love of the brethren that God produces within us and a love for the truth. Let's go before the Father in prayer. Father, thank you for this marvelous passage and these truths. Certainly we rejoice in the truth of the gospel, particularly when we have fallen short, particularly when we have sinned against you, that we have rebelled against your holy law, and we've become painfully aware of our own disobedience, whether willful resistance or whether passively drawn into sin by ignorance. Whatever the case, when it is exposed within us, there's great grief and great sorrow. But then there's also great joy in our hearts as we turn our attention off of ourselves and fix it upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that you, Lord, able to defend us, it's an encouragement to our own hearts. But you presently, standing before the Father, able to intercede on our behalf, our hearts are comforted because we know the security that is produced by your present work. It's not enough that you simply laid down your life, but you even presently preserve and protect us. So may we respond in kind with a kind of zeal that seeks to regularly confess. Even as sin is regularly revealed, we regularly seek to confess. And if our heart has grown weary, has been overwhelmed by the grief and sorrow, may it be comforted by your present work. And may we encourage one another with these words. So indeed, we do not want sin to reign among us and to rule in our lives, but if it is, it should come to account, may we fix our eyes upon you. And at the same time, may we call all people to repentance and faith, calling all people to turn to the only sacrifice, to the Lamb of God, to the only one who can atone for transgressions, so the man would not put his confidence in himself, that he would not ignore his transgression, continuing to live as if he had not sinned at all, but that he would know his sin and regularly confess that he would find forgiveness in you. Thank you, Father, for opening our eyes so that we can see our need for salvation. And thank you for, for giving us this message so that we can believe upon it and trust in it. 
And we thank you again, Lord, for your perfect example so that we can walk in your same footsteps. It's in your name we pray. Amen.